Hello, this is the Black and Asian Therapist Network podcast. This podcast is for anyone who's interested in the internal psychological world from a Black and Asian perspective. Barton Network is where UK Black and Asian therapists share their passion and their expertise. My name is Eugene Ellis. I'm a psychotherapist and founder of Barton. These podcasts are a conversation around the psychological life of Black and Asian people in the UK. Over the next few months, I'll be presenting UK Black and Asian therapists, sharing their thinking and psychological concepts, so as to support all therapists and mental health workers in their work with their Black and Asian clients. This is the second of eight podcasts, where I'll present recordings of therapists who have given talks at Barton conferences over the years. Podcasts will come out once a fortnight. The podcasts will take a slightly different format after this, but I'll let you know more about that nearer the end of the first eight. The last podcast presented psychotherapist and author Farad Delau, giving his critique of the diversity movement at the 2010 Barton Men's Conference. The speaker for this podcast is Elaine Arnold. She spoke at the 2011 Barton Conference. Elaine is of Trinidadian descent and has worked with black families in various contexts for many years as a social worker specialising in psychiatric social work and child guidance, as director of training at NAFSIAT, which is an intercultural therapy centre, as a member of Action for Children Black Families Adoption Panel, and in 1999, she founded the Separation Reunion Forum, which aims to raise awareness of the effects of broken attachments, separation and loss, as well as to promote discussion on the positive influence of developing secure attachments on the educational, emotional and social development of the individual. In her talk, Elaine speaks very knowledgeably about some of the policies that mitigated against Caribbean people when they immigrated to the UK and that they did not prepare for the complications of broken attachments, the repercussions of which are still felt today. She asks us to think about attachment theory and the effects of trauma as a model of working with black families, because through loss of attachment, the way black families relate to people has been damaged. This is Elaine Arnold. Good morning, everyone, and thanks to the organizing committee for inviting me to this conference. I hadn't heard of this organization until two years ago when SRF organized a seminar, uh, Mothers Against Violence, and for the first time we found that our attendance was very sparse. Say, where is everybody? And uh, the next day, I got an email from a few people saying, sorry, we couldn't come yesterday, but we were at the uh, Black and Asian Therapy Network Conference. (laughs) Who are they? Never heard of them. Uh, Since then, I have heard of you. And uh, I'm very pleased to be 
asked to come and share a few thoughts with you. Working with black and other minority groups is really not a new experience for me. Since I worked in Trinidad, which, as you know, is the most cosmopolitan island of the Caribbean, and we had all sorts of, of people there. And so working with um, mixed groups and trying to understand in common parlance where people are coming from has been something that I've done all through my working experience in, in Trinidad. So when I came to this country, it was specifically to look at how West Indian migrants were coping with separation and loss. I wanted to work with mothers and fathers, but men somehow avoided me, which was a new experience for me. <laughs> Didn't like it at all. <laughs> but um, the men thought, oh, well, that's happened so long ago, it doesn't really matter. We don't really have any particular feelings about it, which I know deep down wasn't true. But they felt that they shouldn't own up to, to feelings. Only women felt these sorts of things. And so, unfortunately, my um, research concentrated only on women, mothers. So if I talk about women and mothers, it isn't that I ignore men. And I'm so happy to see that there are men's groups in this organization. SRF hasn't got there yet. SRF, meaning Separation Reunion Forum, which I'll come to a little later to tell you what that's about. Getting to the title, Unsettling Policies, Unanticipated Consequences for African Caribbean Families in Immigration. And then I added something else. Helping Families in Contemporary Society. Now, when African Caribbean people came to Britain, they were full of hope and high expectations that they would be fully employed as the recruitment information had promised. Theirs was a, a, a better, uh, a vision for a better economic life for themselves and families, educational advancement for their children, because they saw education as the only way that their children would get out of poverty and trapped in the service jobs, which most of them had at the time. But they, they didn't anticipate the devastating effects that their experiences of broken attachments, separation and loss, and all that was familiar to them would have had upon them. Neither were they prepared for the failure of government who had invited them to come to help them to meet their basic needs, very basic needs of housing, of childcare. Neither were they prepared for the hostility and the discrimination they received from most of the local people who were not prepared for the influx of people who were coming and people who were so different from them. So mainly, 
I looked at the policies of housing, which was very, very important. It was a major problem in the early days of the migrants. There was massive war damage. There were, you know, so housing was um, at a premium for everyone. But remember that the, the migrants were invited to come. So one would have thought that they would have been housed. No, that didn't happen. And when the borough councils allocated housing to them, it was in the poorest housing estates in the areas where they were subjected to <coughs> persistent racial abuse, physical attacks by the local people who saw them as threats to their jobs. As I said, they were not prepared. They didn't know why suddenly all these people had left home and come. Some of the more educated people thought, why did they leave all the beautiful sunshine and sea and all that to come? When I say educated, at least they knew that the Caribbean had sunshine and <laughs> beaches, because some didn't know where the Caribbean was anyway. Of course, you have heard about the local white residents with rooms to let who refused you, you know the story of that no blacks no irish no dogs no children no anything and that's one of the main things about discriminating that when a person starts to discriminate about one thing that discrimination seems to carry on you know indiscriminately <laughs> to other things so gradually some families Working hard, many of the women worked at more than one job a day, a night. Gradually, they were able to buy their own houses or rent from the voluntary sector, such as housing association. And um, some of the migrants who bought houses themselves became landlords. And although they didn't discriminate and say no migrants or so on, some of their practices resembled the practices of the local people. You know, the, 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 the accommodation was poor, the rents were high, and they also excluded <coughs> children at times, and, and so on. So all of this was very traumatic for the migrants. They had come to the mother country and they'd been told that the mother country needed them. And this whole concept of helping mother was there, you know. And then to be treated in such a fashion really threw them. In 2006, the Commission for Equality in their Code of Practice on Racial Equality in Housing, in their observation, they noted, surprise, surprise, that black and minority ethnic communities were up to three times more likely to be represented in statistics on homelessness. And that in some areas, racial harassment was seen as four times more likely in their areas than in white areas. In this respect, little has changed. Feelings of insecurity and threats to safety can contribute to poor mental health not only in adults, but also in children, and can stand in the way of making relationships and prevent living lives that are fulfilling. So that's 
one of the unsettling policy that mitigated against Caribbean people and the effects of that is still to be felt today. The second um, policy that I want to touch on, as you know, many of the migrants were women as well. And when the men found that they were unable to uh, work for enough remuneration to be economically secure enough to return, after five years, as most people thought they had come for, they sent for their partners, or partners came and joined them. Many of them left the children behind, as you know. But they were young, of childbearing age, and children began to be born. Now, though the British government wanted women to work as they are doing now, nothing has changed, encouraged women to work, um, daycare for the children of working mothers was a major problem. And there was no extended family here as such in any large numbers to help to look after the children. Some of the childminders were not always willing to care for black children on the basis that they didn't know how to care for them. They were unfamiliar with skin care and hair care. In some of my work with um, childcare in Wandsworth at, at one point before I went to, um, to teach in, at, at Sussex. I met a number of people who repeated this. We don't know how to care about skin. I said, look here, wait a minute. I grew up in the Caribbean and most of us, we had coconut oil and all sorts of oil to put on the skin. But you flogged your Johnson's baby oil over there. What is Johnson's baby oil for? to put on skin, to make it soft, to prevent it from, from scaling and all that. So what's the difference? Because the children are black, you don't think that you can do this? Oh, you didn't think about that. Mm. So there were all these sorts of peculiar thoughts about caring for black children. Some of the unregistered childminders who accepted children, provided minimal care. Sometimes they were left constrained to one place. Some mothers would go and find the children had been tied to the banister for most of the day to prevent the children from wandering around. I remember talking to one mother about childcare when I was doing my interview for looking at how people were coping, how mothers were coping. On her way home, she saw her child in a pram outside of a shop. The pram was there. Nobody was looking at the child or anything. She took the pram and went home, and nobody asked her anything. The childminder didn't ring to say, where is the child or anything. That was the level of care and the level of communication that people had with some of the the mothers. Now, I'm not saying that she was right to have done it. She could have said to the child, mind I'm taking the child. But I suppose angry at um, seeing the child just neglected the outside of the shop, she did this. And um, she said she was expecting that the child minder would 
telephone to find out if she had gone home or something like that. Nothing happened. But um, all, all was well. Now, since daycare, the daycare provision in areas where the immigrants lived was limited, and the nurseries accepted children from single mothers, thus excluding women who were married or cohabiting. And um, this had the result of forcing women into the position that they denied they were in relationships. And so fathers were deprived of being involved in, in the daycare because they couldn't go to collect the children from the nurseries if mothers weren't able or so on, because these women were supposed to be single, single women. That was one policy. Some of the parents were able, in their domestic arrangements, to, on a shift system, that when the women were working nights, the fathers would look after the children, vice versa, and so on. Unfortunately, some single mothers who were overwhelmed by all these problems applied to local authorities and children were taken into care. Thus, they were replicating the pattern of the generation before them of being separated from their children. Some of the, some of the care homes were not in the areas where they, where they lived. Today, as I said before, little has changed about housing. In childcare, some of the concerns today, well, children especially of African-Caribbean origin, number of children whose parents are still unable to care for them in their own homes, especially young mothers who are unemployed, who lack the support of fathers of the children, who very often are themselves, the fathers, are unemployed. But there are added dimensions which sometimes necessitate the removal of children from homes. Some may be neglected, physically, sexually, emotionally abused or witnessed to domestic violence. Currently, there is an increased use of alcohol or drugs among parents. Some, are, some children are the victims of HIV AIDS. Many of the parents are in need of therapeutic help, but often this is not provided. Often some of them refuse the help because it's not properly explained to them. Now, currently in government circles, uh, the issue of placing black children with white adopters is again rising its head. Now in the 80s, I was part of uh, Lambeth Social Services and the Independent Adoption Society, which looked and recruited black families. And the same arguments that we were having in the 80s are being repeated now. The children should be given an opportunity to live in families rather than stay in the institutions. And if they're only white families, they should be placed there. And race should not be taken into account. That's the argument that is, is going on. True enough, there are some children who have been raised by white families and who have survived. But take the case of Ruth, 21-year-old, who came for some counseling. She, in relating her early life experience, claimed that at school she felt ashamed knowing that her black parents had given her away. 
Although at home she felt attached, because as you know, children will attach to those who care for them. And some genuinely loved their, their, their white parents, but the feeling of not belonging, as Ruth explained, was there all the time. She observed the similarity between her pairs and their parents on, you know, when they came to um, open days and school meetings and so on. And at second, secondary school, she told her pairs that she was fostered. She never admitted that she was adopted. And it was only in the therapeutic situation that she spoke of the hurt and the shame of not being wanted by her biological mother and her black families. She felt that she was rescued by white adoptive parents. And as she understood the, later, she understood the nature of racism, she felt that probably these white parents were feeling superior to her black parents. She struggled hard with a sense of loss, as she described it, of her real self. So she was all the time living in a false self. Fortunately, she progressed well educationally and uh, was able to function uh, reasonably well. Currently, there's still debate ab about those in the caring professions about the extent to which culture should be taken into account when working with families from black and other minorities. It's well to bear in mind that Culture is important, but all cultural practices of minorities are not in the interest of children. And in our work with, with black and minorities, we must be aware that culture is dynamic. It changes, and people will change uh, ways of behaving if, it's if those ways are beneficial to them. And we as black, workers must not get into the habit of feeling that we cannot um, say to our black clients, this is not beneficial. We must not get into that at all. Um, one burning point about, about parents that everybody criticized in the 70s and the 80s and, and some of the reasons why children were taken into care, that parents um, corrected their children through corporal punishment. That is still going on. And many of the parents, many of the mothers I spoke to in discussing this say, well, you know, my mother, my mother beat me and it didn't do me any harm. And I said, okay, wait a minute, let us, let us look at it. Just think back, how did you feel then? And very often in stopping to think, they revealed that um, they didn't like it at all. They felt aggrieved, they felt resentful against parents, felt that there was not a close relationship to the parents because they didn't communicate with them why they were beating them. Sometimes they didn't know why they were be being beaten or sometimes they had forgotten that they had misbehaved, you know. And parents had saved it up. You know, last week, when you do so-and-so, right, well, you're getting it all now, today. But there were others who described a close relationship, and if they were beaten, they felt that, well, probably they deserved it, and tried hard 
not to repeat the behavior which displeased their parents. I remember if I was beaten, the, well, you know, we use the word beaten, but my mother didn't beat me, but she hit me. And I know the next five minutes I would be up on her lap, you know, uh, trying to, to say, well, I still love you. And trying to get her to say, well, I love you, although I beat you. And, um, and that was fine. And then she realized that after a time, beating me didn't make any difference to what I was going to do anyway. But, so, <laughs> but um, we, must, we must not get into that habit of, of saying to our black clients, well, you're accustomed to doing that, that is our culture, if it is detrimental to the child. When disadvantaged families seek help after traumatic events, which include broken attachments, separation and loss, I would like to suggest that work based on attachment theory very often produces positive outcomes. The workers may empower them to give them time, lots of time to tell their narratives, to examine their early attachments, to encourage reflection on how their past experiences may still be influencing their feelings and reactions in the present time. Very, very, very important. Trauma can produce such feelings of helplessness, of fear and threat of destruction that those states of mind are capable of organizing mental, of disorganizing mental functioning and can overwhelm the adaptations that the individual can make. So we need to give people the time. Some reactions of individuals who have experienced um, broken attachments and in their early lives to significant figures, sometimes they present with psychosomatic illnesses, not realizing uh, the extent to which they have been emotionally hurt and emotionally damaged. And the knowledge of our clients' migration history, Caribbean migration, but not only Caribbean, other people have come from other places, other people have had experiences of separation and loss. And I speak of the Caribbean because I, that's my work. I've done the work with Caribbean women. But the effects of broken attachment, separation, and loss run across ethnic groups, race, class, everything. I usually say that sometimes I would like to get a group of the politicians who went to boarding schools because many of them suffered the effect of the separation and loss from parents and the way they relate to people have been damaged. So if you can include some of them in your men's group, that would be a way forward, <laughs> I think. Bowlby, John Bowlby identified five tasks which could guide work of this nature. First, the provision of a secure base from which the client would be able to explore past painful experiences. So our, our work with our clients, they must feel secure. That was what we tried to do at, at Nafsiat. And people always said, oh, when I come here, I feel so comfortable. Hmm? 
not only the physical space, but our whole reaction to, to people who can feel that they're being understood. So they need the secure base. Secondly, help the client to consider how to engage in relationships with significant attachment figures and what are the expectations and what is their behavior. Thirdly, the, encourage the client to examine the relationship with the therapist and the way she's thought of as an attachment figure. Because very often, some of the, 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 the way in which the client reacts to the therapist resembles the way in which they're attached to their significant attachment figure. That transference is, is there. So if mother had been very dominating and, and the client feels that, he, that the therapist is dominating, she can react in that same way. Fourthly, to help the client to think about the childhood and adolescent experiences, particularly in relation to parents' influence on the present. That task is often painful and maybe hard to express because there is some loyalty. Many, many clients find it difficult to say, I didn't like my mother or I still don't like her. They find it very difficult, but it is useful to get them to do that. And fifthly, helping the client to understand that images of the self and of others, which may have come from their early life experiences or from parents, may not be appropriate for the present or for the future. Many of our clients are very insightful. I found working with many of the women who didn't know a word about attachment theory or anything could explain themselves in ways that you find in the textbook, you know, and they didn't know anything about it. When some women say, you know, when my mother spoke or looked at me, I froze, you know, and then you see the disorganized attachment that we read about is there. So we mustn't feel that they have no insight into our therapeutic knowledge they have, and it is useful for us to try to help them to utilize it. I'm not suggesting that therapists are able to cure all the ills which beset people who feel lost in threatening environments. And I do realize that some of the poli policies need to be challenged, as you said. And we need to get through to policy makers to help us in our work with disadvantaged families. Thank you. That was Elaine Arnold giving a talk on some of the policies that mitigated against Caribbean people when they immigrated to the UK at the 2010 Barton Conference. To find out more about Barton, please visit us at our website, www.baatn.org.uk. It would be good to hear from you about these podcasts and to get your views and feedback. You can email me at eugene at baatn.org.uk or you can leave your thoughts on the Barton podcast page. I hope you can join me for the next podcast when I will be presenting a recorded talk from psychoanalyst and author Farkri Davids who lays out for us very clearly how internal racism works. Until then, goodbye. <laughs>